Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, has tonight said the Omicron variant poses a very serious risk to the country. Agriculture Minister Charlie McConnell will be live from government buildings for the very latest. I've accepted advice from the Chief Medical Officer in NIAC to waive the 15-minute waiting time post-vaccine. This is something that over the weekend in our conversations with the GPs, with the pharmacists, they said uh, would really help in terms of getting to more and more people. The Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Tony Houlihan, urges people to take precautions now to avoid being in isolation for Christmas. Professor of Experimental Immunology, Kingston Mills, and psychotherapist Richard Hogan are here in studio to discuss. Lotto Mania continues as the operator of the National Lottery is seeking regulatory approval for a must-win draw. Founder of the MathsTutor.ie, Eamon Toland, and Fine Gael's Bernard Durkin join us, and later, Every year, Women's Aid experience a spike in calls after the festive period. CEO Sarah Benson will be here. You can get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. tonight I'm joined by the Minister for Agriculture, Food and the Marine, Charlie McConnell, who's at Government Buildings. Uh, thank you for joining us tonight, Minister. Um, we're hearing from your colleague, the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, that it's entirely possible that infections and hospitalisations could exceed last January's peak because of data that's emerging from the UK. How would you describe the level of concern at government level, at government level tonight? Well, it's obviously really, good evening Claire, it's obviously really concerning to see particularly what's happening in Britain over the last number of days where today, and today for example, they've had their largest number of COVID cases at any stage over the last um, almost two years at this stage. So it is something that's concerning government, it's something that's concerning public health and it's something that we're monitoring very closely. Um, NEFID will be meeting again tomorrow to consider uh, the evolution of the Omicron uh, variant and the potential impact that it may have to assess the international evidence in relation to it. But I suppose the bottom line continues to be um, that all of us and, and everyone plays their individual part in the national effort uh, to continue to suppress the risk, the, 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 the risk of infection. And in particular as well, that everyone uh, that, that is eligible uh, avails over the next period of time of the booster vaccine because as has been the case right throughout this, uh, this pandemic, uh, the, the, the vaccine does give um, protection and in particular the, the booster vaccine 
is really important in relation to protecting people from ser ser serious illness and uh, therefore it's really important and there has been really good progress in relation to that and I know the pharmacists, the GPs and indeed the vaccination centres are working really hard and indeed the public are responding very positively to it as well. Yeah, at the speed in which this variant is moving, we know that the vaccine alone won't uh, resolve this. Uh, with that in mind, and because of what the minister said about hospitalisations maybe exceeding what we saw last January, is there an ability to increase ICU capacities? Will additional measures now be considered to get the health system in a better place to cope with such an increase? Yeah, well, there has been lots of investment over the last year to into the hospital service to be able to scale up, to, and particularly the, the capacity of ICU to be able to scale up as necessary. Of course, you know, the government and public health professionals are monitoring the evidence so far. It's not clear yet what exactly the impact of Omicron will be, and that is being assessed closely. But there is uh, very much additional capacity, if necessary, in the health service, particularly in the ICU, um, with regard to ICU beds. But of course, that would have an impact in other parts of the health service. But uh, we're, we're continuing to monitor the evidence around this and the key thing in the meantime is uh, people continue to be cautious. I think the public have responded really well over the last number of weeks in relation to taking the public health advice in relation to being more cautious and conservative in how they go about their daily lives and that has seen a plateauing uh, uh, over the last while in, in COVID cases but of course the unknown which we're monitoring is the, the Omicron impact okay. and, that, and that will be what we'll watch very closely over the yep. next number of days. Of course uh, as you say, NEFET are meeting tomorrow to consider recommendations around managing social contacts and reducing social mixing. Um, there is speculation that other me measures such as restricting hospitality um, is perhaps on the cards. Is everything on the table right now? Well, well, we'll be guided by the, the public health evidence on this, uh, and they've been watching it very, very closely. And obviously, their advice so far has been for everyone to be cautious and take precautions in relation to what they are doing. Also, to plan ahead in terms of Christmas and how they plan to spend it, and being cautious in the run-up to that. Uh, so, listen, the, the, the evidence is emerging in relation to Omicron. It's not clear yet, um, and, and we, but we will, as always throughout this pandemic, be guided by public health uh, advice and by their assessment of the situation. I think it has served us really well. Well, over the last um, 20, 20 months or so and certainly we'll continue to work very closely together to, to, to deal with this challenge. Of course the government has had to change tack on this because um, there weren't additional measures being contemplated. It's all changed now. Um, with those figures you mentioned in the UK, 78,000 um, positive tests recorded there, more than that in fact, the highest number since the start of the pandemic over there. Are there alarm bells in government at the number of people who will be travelling home from the UK next week? Well, I think it's important to recognise that Omicron is already in Ireland, so it's, travel is not the, the issue here. It's about actually how we all live our lives and all of us reducing the risk around that. So it'd be different, obviously, if it wasn't in the country already. But because it's here, it's about managing our domestic situation. Obviously, in terms of international travel, um, precaution is important there, and we have systems in place and testing in place to minimise the risk around that. But it, it applies to all of our daily lives. Uh, it is very much in the, the, the the virus is very much in the community, but also Omicron is in, the, is in the community and indeed has been increasing in recent days. So it's about, how, it's about everybody playing their part. And, and as I said, the public have been very, very strong and showed great leadership over the last period of time in actually doing that. And I've no doubt will in the, in, in the time ahead.
ahead too. Minister, I want to talk to you about um, what we heard um, around the protocol today. The British government announced that it's putting off the introduction of full customs controls on goods uh, moving from Ireland into Britain. And that will have an impact, of course, well, a positive one for now, won't it, on, on farmers and food exporters, a stay for now, but for how long? Yeah, it'll be welcomed very much by all who export to uh, Great Britain and, and something I, I'm, I welcome as well. It's the third time we've seen a delay uh, announced by the British government in relation to the application of import control requirements. Um, it's something, though, uh, that the Department of Agriculture uh, that we've been working on right throughout the year, that we have very significant resources in place to prepare for, and indeed that exporting companies and food exporting companies in particular, who are, are, are strongest exporters to Britain, have been preparing for too. But this extra um, time uh, and stay will be, will be welcomed by those, but it won't stop our preparations to be ready for whenever it does come into play. And every, I know every company, as well as uh, everyone in my own department, will continue to be prepared prepared and to put yeah. efforts and plans in place for, whenever, for that eventuality. Uh, Minister, b before I let you go, you announced animal welfare funding today. It's something um, you say you feel pretty strongly about, especially in, in the run-up to Christmas. Tell us why. Yeah, I think it's, it's a really important time of year and if today we had our first animal, inaugural Animal Welfare Awareness Day and it's something that will run every year from now on and it's something that we're running in December in the run-up to Christmas because we, we do see often um, people making decisions that are short-term decisions in relation to pets, for example, around Christmas time that really should be long-term ones and what's mm. really important actually is, is that's a decision I think that should be made away from the Christmas period. But right throughout the year, um, animals and their welfare is absolutely central to myself as Minister and is really, really important to every citizen in this country too. And uh, it's very much at the core of our policy okay. and also indeed in relation to our funding. And that's why I announced record funding today to 98 animal welfare charities around the country. And I want to recognise the great work right. that they do year round, okay. working on the ground, ensuring animal welfare is central and animals are, are, okay. are cared for to the highest of, uh, the highest of standards. Okay. Minister Charlie McConnell, there we leave it. Thanks for joining us from Government Buildings tonight. Uh, I'd like to come to my panel now. Uh, Richard and Kingston, you're both very welcome along to the programme. Um, when we're looking at what we're hearing from the UK today, that may have startled a lot of people, that, that incredibly high number of infections. We're seeing 78,618 COVID infections, the highest number since the start of the pandemic. What's your take on that when you're looking to what may happen here? Or are they, are they in a very different situation? Because, of course, they rolled back on a lot of their restrictions, almost all of them, in fact, and there isn't the same uptake in terms of the vaccine there. So are they in a different place? I think they are slightly different than we are. I mean, it's inevitable that Ireland, in Ireland, the, the, the Omicron variant is, become, is going to become the dominant variant. And it's only a matter of time in the same way is already getting there in the UK. I think this is going to happen within a matter of weeks. The Britain has relied very heavily on the AstraZeneca vaccine and, and the uptake of the vaccine is not as high as it is in Ireland. For example, in London, 33% of the population um, have had no vaccine. So there's a lot of unvaccinated people in, in London. Some of them would have been infected, so they will have a level of immunity from that. But that is little different from, from Ireland, where 98% you know, of our older population are vaccinated. And for the, for the full population, you know, it's, it's close to 90. So we're, but the, 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 the downside of that is that two doses of the vaccine don't really give any protection against Omicron. With the Pfizer, it's about 35%. Um, With the AstraZeneca, it's close to zero. It's that low? 
that low. That's what the study in the UK showed of last week. If that study was, is, is confirmed um, by larger studies, it, it's, it's pretty scary in that anyone who's had two doses is effectively not going to be protected yeah, against so Omicron. many people, that means essentially we're back to square one. Well, not quite. If we boost, that level comes back up to 75, which is very reassuring. And 75% of people who got a booster dose were protected against symptomatic infection with Omicron in that UK study. So we need to get the boosters out as quickly as possible. So I'm relieved to hear that there are some additional measures being put in place to expedite the booster rollout because we really do need it now because that's the best chance we have of trying to stave off the Omicron variant. Good news emerged today. It's important to relay some good news um, around uh, medication for COVID um, that, that's getting approval and likely to be used here. Yes, um, so Pfizer have an antiviral drug which um, when it was used in people with symptomatic COVID-19, it prevented 89%, it reduced by 89% the numbers of people going to hospital. So it really does reduce the um, disease in people who are infected. And it's a, an oral tablet, so it would be taken twice a day for five days. Um, Pfizer said they can make 200 million doses of this next year. They've already got some stocks and it's going to for approval to the FDA and the EMA in the coming weeks and it should be approved hopefully by the end of the year um, and this will be an additional arsenal to now it's not it's not in any way going to solve the problem but it will be a very important additional arsenal in dealing with COVID-19 it will effectively mean that it, it should reduce the numbers of hospitalizations significantly if we have enough stocks available of the drug in, in the next year. Yeah, of course, what we know now is there is no silver bullet, but a culmination of things all help. And Richard, how important do you think it is for people now who are facing into Christmas? We were here this time last year. Are we really facing all this again? There's so many people coming home who didn't mm. uh, manage to do that last year. There's reunions that are just dying to happen. Mm. Um, so how important are you know are news updates like that in helping people feel, well, look, there could be some hope around this? Yeah, well, I think hearing Dr. Kinston speak there is for someone like myself and a lot of frontline workers who got AstraZeneca when they hear that you might have you know zero protection with this new variant and then to hear that you would have over 70% protection if you got the booster I think that's a really positive thing I think the messaging needs to be more out there for people to see it and to hear it so that they feel more confident about you more know, tangible yeah more tangible and that you know it's more accessible that you can walk in and, and you can get your booster you know within an hour of you walking to a drop-in center I think all that messaging is really vital important to improve um, our sense of we're getting through, we can manage to get through this. I think a huge part of like resilience is understanding that we have the capacity to get through it. Uh, like we heard there from the minister again tonight, this sort of messaging around do, doing the right thing, mm. um, knowing yourself what you know precautions you must take, and we're hearing that like right across the board from the CMO as well. Do you think people will buy into that again, or is that message running a bit thin? I mean, this is showing us a real clear about human behaviour. I don't think you're ever. I think it might be an unrealistic expectation to expect 100% of the population to take up the vaccine. I just think that that's unrealistic. Maybe I think there's always going to be a cohort who are suspicious. There's always going to be a cohort who are going to be less, you know, more reticent to take something or to take what the government are saying. I think that's just a part of just human behaviour. I think that's just the way it is. Mm. I think, you know, we, we are so 90% vaccinated. That's, I think that's a very positive thing for all of us. Yeah, and just on, I suppose, the messaging around to cut down on social contacts and all those sort of things, uh, are people weary of it or are, are they 
you know, accepting now that this is just the way it is? There was real, I think there was a real kind of weariness. And I think there was a bit of world weariness with all, with all the regulations and social distancing and, and all the stuff that we were doing there for a while. But I think what, what we've seen over the last number of weeks with the increased cases, we've become more vigilant again. I see it around my own practice and you see it in work on the trains. Okay, well, a little earlier, I spoke to Dr. Amy Morgan about the recommendation from the National Immunisation Advisory Committee over the waiving of that 15-minute wait period after a vaccine has been administered. It was definitely something that was limiting us in terms of how many vaccines we could deliver on any given day. Um, and obviously, we do understand that the message going forward now is that we're really in a race against time um, with, the, with the new variant to try and vaccinate as many people as possible. So I think this is a, a sensible, pragmatic decision um, and, and, you know, I, I welcome it. You have an awful lot of work on your hands now because we're also hearing today from government that it's GPs who will also be involved in the administration of the booster dose to 40 to 49-year-olds and actually all age cohorts as you run through them, as you run through um, your patient list. Are GPs prepared for that? Are they in a position to deliver in what, what must be a, a very busy time for you? Um, and do you envisage any challenges around doing that? Yes, I, I think there will, of course, be challenges, just like there will be challenges that we have faced at every stage of, of the vaccination campaign in terms of the logistics of getting deliveries, organising your clinics, making sure you have enough staff. You know, it's more than just the GPs involved. There are practice nurses and um, our administrations uh, team who've been working very, very hard um, to try and keep our clinics running as seamlessly as possible. And then obviously the challenge of trying to continue to deliver routine um, GP care alongside this, albeit, you know, certainly we are going to have to make some uh, rearrangements in terms of how we prioritise our workload um, you know, whilst we're trying to deliver this yeah, and that, uh, program. That, was, that was what I was going to ask you about that, the idea that you'll have to sideline some of your routine work, which is very important for you. What, what sort of impact will that have? Are you worried about that? You know, I think having run vaccine clinics so far to date, I think we have gotten experience at, at how to run these things um, and, and trying to keep the show on the road, which I think general practice has remained open throughout the pandemic. And we've been very good about balancing our workload and um, whilst acknowledging that this is an incredibly busy time of the year, as it always is actually in general practice and, and across healthcare in general. So I think the message would be that, you know, not that the doors are shut um, in terms of delivering acute care to patients who need it. But obviously, you know, we're appealing to the public to really be patient with us in terms of prioritising, you know, non-essential um, care that, that will obviously need to po possibly be pushed out, you know, beyond the Christmas period in order for us to be able to try and push ahead and, and try and get as many boosters um, delivered as possible. So, you know, it's, it's not a case that we are suspending all medical services but you know we obviously will need the cooperation of the public to try and uh, work with us on this. And the key thing is especially for that group of over 40s which may have gone to a HSE mass vaccination centre before uh, don't call us we'll call you that's what you'll be saying. Yes absolutely um, and you know Again, as I pointed out before, GP practices who are participating in this will have already been involved in delivering vaccines. So they will have their own systems about how to identify patients, prioritise them in terms of, you know, who is in need most in terms of who, who they want to call in first. Um, and that obviously is going to be either through communicating via text or online booking systems. 
So, you know, really um, our phone lines are, are busy enough um, currently as it is. So we would, you know, again, urge our public just to have patience with us. And if you are eligible and your GP is participating, and rest assured that you will be contacted and obviously you know be mindful that there are, will be other avenues for for vaccination as well uh, through mass vaccination okay. clinics and pharmacies etc dr amy morgan um, gp thank you for joining us tonight thank you and kingston mills i wanted to ask you um you know we are hearing a lot about the the, the, the booster rollout, you're saying that's like a promising thing if it, com if it comes to pass in, in the way uh, as ambitious as, the, as they hope it'll be. Um, but around household mixing, because there is speculation that we're going to reduce the number of households um, that'll, that, that's, that, that will be able to go and visit another household from three downwards. Will that make a difference? Like, is there a safe way to spend Christmas this year, do you think? I think um, we only have to look and see what happened last Christmas when we were told to have a meaningful Christmas. And we all did. And we, we had an explosion of cases afterwards in January. And I think that's going to happen again if we, if we do the same this Christmas. So I, I do think we need to reduce the well, number of Well, a lot of, of people didn't do everything. I think there has been a lot of criticism. But a lot of people, you know, were, were aware that there was a, a sure, pandemic. Sure, there were. But we still had an explosion of cases last January. And you can't get away from that. I think, you know, the facts are very simple. The more social interactions you have, the more chance you have of transmitting it to one person in that group is infected. And now with Omicron going to be the dominant variant after Christmas, it is more transmissible. So one person in a room of 20 people that's infected with Omicron is going to give that virus to nearly everybody else in that room. So you've got to reduce your contacts or we're going to have an even greater explosion of cases in January of this year than we did last year. Okay, so, I mean, you're talking about... Um restaurants, pubs, everything. If you have one person, 20 people in that same space I'm not saying infected. 20 people will get infected, but the risks are much higher when you have a more transmissible virus than they are when you have a less transmissible. And remember, Delta was already a more transmissible virus than one that preceded it. So each new variant is more transmissible, making it easier for it to transmit to people. So the risks are higher with, the, with these new variants, in particular with Omicron. Mm. So what would your advice be? Because I know you're a big proponent of antigen testing. Um, should we be doing multiple antigen tests when we're going to, to visit other households? I think... Uh, keep the windows open, we know about that. Um, but measures such as that will make a difference, won't they? I think every um, measure that we can take we should try and take it. And that includes reducing the numbers, doing antigen tests when you're meeting people, when you're going out, wherever. Um, um, I think it's, it's very, very well wor worthwhile. While antigen tests are not as sensitive as PCR, they can pick up people when the infectious disease stages of the disease, and they're definitely worthwhile doing. And they're now freely available everywhere. Okay. Um they're freely available, but they're not free. They are not, not free. But they're freely available. <laughs> OK, my thanks to Professor Kingston Mills. Richard will be staying with me because coming up after the break, if you're not in, you can't win. TD's raised concerns today about the lotto draw. Stay with us. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back. Now, representatives from the National Lottery appeared before Naroctus Committee this afternoon following concerns that the 19 million euro lotto jackpot had not been won since June. It comes as National Lottery operators Premier Lotteries Ireland have sought regulatory approval to hold a must-be-won draw for the 19 million euro jackpot, which has been capped at that figure since early October. Well, earlier today, CEO of Premier Lotteries Ireland, Andrew Algio, told the Oireachtas Finance Committee how this draw would work. We would have a draw whereby if nobody wins uh, the jackpot, i.e. matches the top six numbers, then the monies would instead be won by winners in the tier below that where there are winners. And as a result, it would be certain that the jackpot amount is paid to players. Well, joining me now is psychotherapist Richard Hogan and founder of the mathstutor.ie, Eamon Toland. I think, um, you know, lotto players may be frustrated, but many people are fascinated by just what's happening here. Um, the odds of winning, first off. Yeah, the odds of winning uh, the jackpot are 10.7 million to one. OK, so you've one in 11 million chance of winning in the first place. Yes, that's correct. But the idea of it rolling over since June, this hasn't happened before, that it's gone on for so long. So yeah. what are the odds of that? Uh, well, that's a more complicated question, but I suppose to uh, give a simple answer, the odds, the odds of that happening are around 2,250 to one, roughly. Okay, but it's happening and it's annoyed people to the point uh, that it's gone before an Oireachtas committee at least to see just what is going on and what can be done. Um, so among the proposals there, well, there are a couple, there are a couple of proposals, aren't there? Um, first of all, the lotto game has changed, hasn't it? Because there used to be um, plenty, uh, fewer balls in the yeah. drum, which gave people a much higher chance of winning. But they changed that a That's few right. years ago and that kind of changed everything. Explain that. Yeah, I mean, I suppose when the lottery started in 1988, there were 36 balls in the drum and the odds were around one in two million. So a lot, a lot easier to win it. Still quite long odds, but a lot easier than one in 11 million. And then as the years went on, they have added more and more uh, numbers to the machine uh, to the extent that there's now 47 balls in the machine. And that's why the odds have lengthened so much. Yeah, so you could see the proposal there then to remove a couple of balls could make yeah. all the difference. Um, yeah. If it's a one in 11 million chance now, yeah. uh, what, what sort of, you know, how would the odds be shortened and how would people stand that better chance of it could be them, maybe? Yeah, well, I mean, even removing two balls out of the 47 doesn't sound like much, but it actually changes the odds quite significantly. Uh, so you go from uh, 10.7 million to one down to around 8 million to one. And obviously, the more numbers that are removed, the, the shorter the odds become. So that's, that's one option, I suppose. OK, it's still one in eight million. 
Yeah. So if they're talking about a guaranteed must-win jackpot, how would that work? Well, the only way to win the lottery or to guarantee winning the lottery is to uh, go out and fill in 10.7 million unique, all different uh, combinations so that you cover every possible combination. Uh, so that's the only way to be sure to win it. Um, and there aren't that many tickets sold every week. So hence, it's, uh, it's not guaranteed to... In fact, it's designed... The lottery is designed to roll over. Um, the operators want it to roll over and um, they've certainly got their wish. So they want it to roll over, but now we have this regulatory approval being sought in order to make it a must win. It's yeah. just a case of how, how are they going to do that? Yeah, I mean, I suppose there's a lot of options there. Um, for example, they could take a couple of balls out of the machine, but then I suppose if your favourite number is 46 or 47, you might feel a bit uh, frustrated by that. And also, I think there'd be a logistical problem because there would still be a 46 and 47 on the payslip. So uh, that could be problematic. Um, but there are other ways. Uh, one way of doing it would be, for example, the match fives actually get a pretty poor return uh, currently. Uh, the odds for that are around 1 in 44,000, which is, you know, high enough odds. Uh, and if you do match five, you actually only win about 1,500 euros which is uh, quite miserly, really. So one proposal would be um, if they took the match fives and very simply just said match fives will get a million this week. And uh, that would probably cost around 50 million in prizes, but I think the National Lottery have that in the kitty by this point. OK, I feel like I need to, I don't know, get a calculator out or I'm <laughs> struggling to understand this. <laughs> from a past maths perspective. Um, but thanks for bringing it home to us on that sure. one, Eamon. Um, on a more serious note, though, Richard, because there's a lot of talk around the lotto um, and it is kind of being perceived or branded as a national institution. Yeah, of course, fun. it's a privately run <clears throat> lottery. Um, are you comfortable with that? I think, you know, as, as a family psychotherapist working with families every day of the, of, of the week, you see the devastation that gambling brings into the family system. And it's definitely marketed as a bit of fun. Um, it definitely normalises gambling. We have about 5% of our population dealing with a serious gambling problem currently in Ireland, and about 1% of that, are, their lives are destroyed by gambling. Um, since ubiquitous internet and smartphones, you know, it, all bets are off. Teenagers have been targeted. Cross-selling of products when you go into your app. I mean, you're with with smartphones and ubiquitous internet. You just you can just download an app, and all of a sudden you're involved. You've got really you know really heavy gambling uh, things in front of you there that cross-sell the products. So you go into place a bet and say Man United, you're 15. You place a bet in Man United. All of a sudden you get pushed into these mm. casino seats suites, which are designed to prompt neurological responses in the brain of reward and pleasure, which is going to move you towards addiction. Yeah, and do you see, I mean, do you deal with people who have an addiction to the lotto or is that just like, you know, they would also be big gamblers on other things like horse racing and, 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 and other sports and you mentioned there, yeah. you know, the apps and the proliferation of all of that, that it's more than just the lotto. It's more than just the lotto. You know, it's, it's, it might start with the lotto and it might start with the normalising of gambling with the lotto. It's a bit of fun, dad's doing, mom's doing, everyone around you is doing it and you're a, you're a young child growing up in this normalised gambling environment when your brain hasn't developed, you know, properly to be able to risk adverse. Ah.
with, with that in mind, um, with it not being won and it being at mm. 19 million euro for months, is that does that entice people? Do you think to play more? Of course it does, because it's. it's or do you, do you not think? Oh, sure. What's the point? It's not going to be won. No, and but, it's but, capped at a certain amount. But the, the thing about gambling is, even if you lose, the, you get that dopamine kick. So the idea of the of the, price, the cash price going up and up and up is just feeding right into the neurological responses that feed addiction. Okay, well, let's talk to the man who brought this to a bit of public attention. That's Bernard Durkin um, from Fine Gael. And it has been in front of the Iraq this, uh, Finance Committee today. Um, it's been very much, um, you know, there's been a bit of a grilling uh, to lottery bosses around all of this. Uh, for someone who doesn't play the lotto, you care an awful lot about it. Well, uh, I, <laughs> I don't play it very often. Very seldom I play the lotto. But the, the, the points made by the last speaker, I think I would agree with. I, we, it has to be monitored. It has to be run in accordance with the rules and the legislation that laid it out in the first place. There's always the danger that when a lottery becomes uh, unwinnable, for want of a better description, uh, as uh, appeared to be the case in this situation, that people will try harder on the basis that the number is about to come up the next time. And people tend then to go and, 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 and bid again and bid again and bid again to try to achieve something that seems to be elusive. Now, there's an old rule that was obviously established or said to be established in Monte Carlo that the house never loses and that uh, numbers can come up uh, once every six months, or every year or never at all. And the, 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 the cases were set in Las Vegas and in Monte Carlo, where I think 26 and 32 occasions, uh, the same number uh, turned up in the roulette wheel, which would take a lot of explaining, explaining in any event. But the important thing in this situation is national lottery funds go to very many good causes uh, up and down the, the, the length and breadth of the country and have done for years and hopefully will do in the future. What really brought this to my attention uh, was uh, a constituent who said, where have all the winners gone? And he, 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 so I, I looked at it a bit more carefully then. And then transpired, you know, it was 28 times, 32 times, and so on and so forth, 50 times, 51, 52 times, and so on. And uh, it was suggested to me that it could go on for another six months or another year. Now, that would mean that people would begin to frantically uh, bet on the basis that okay. their number had to come up so, at some stage. So and that doesn't necessarily follow. I, I take it uh, just... Briefly, Bernard, do you be happy with this must-win jackpot? I think that there are variations uh, of how that could be done. I think, it, I, it, I believe it would be much better to have uh, 20 people or 50 families benefit from the national lottery draw in a particular situation okay. than to have one family become multimillionaires. And I think that, that we need to monitor yes. how it's operated on an ongoing basis. Okay. And out of that ensure that its integrity continues. All right. Um, we heard from Bernard Dirk and then he'd be happy for 20 or 50 families to share in that lotto jackpot. Is that realistic when you look at the odds of that, that the 19 million could be divvied out among 20 or 50 people? Well, I mean, I suppose, as I say, you know, one way of doing it would be if the match five people um, all took a share in it. It's extremely unlikely that, tw that 20 people are going to match all six, given that over a period of six months, no one has matched all six. And that, that could go on for another six months. There's nothing to say that it won't. It's extremely unlikely that it'll go on for another six months, but it's a random process. So if I knew the answer to that, I'd be buying lottery tickets. Okay, would you be playing next week? I rarely play the lotto. 
we played once at the, you know, when this thing started to get a bit of hype, just for a bit of fun. Um, but we know very well that it's an absolute mugs game, <laughs> and uh, we don't recommend it. Um, as I've said, the odds are one in ten million to one. I think everybody understands that that is extremely unlikely and uh, I wouldn't recommend it. Okay, would that put you off? We don't know. Uh, we'll leave it there for now. My thanks to the panel. Coming up after the break, Christmas pressures can see domestic abuse and violence rise. Women's Aid CEO Sarah Benson will be joining me. Now, Women's Aid, in partnership with Allianz, are running the world's strongest women campaign, uh, which continues to highlight resilience, strength and courage of women who are living through domestic abuse. So CEO of Women's Aid, Sarah Benson, joins me in studio. Uh, but first, let's take a look at that campaign. Um, a really stark message there. Um, terrifying. Actually, at the start, you think it's something completely different. That was obviously the aim to catch people's attention. But showing how terrifying a situation really it can be for women, and especially at this time of year, Sarah. That's right, yeah. I mean, we're delighted to have had the opportunity to partner with Allianz, and we're really grateful for their commitment and investment in, you know, putting awareness out there in conjunction with Women's Aid um, as a national domestic violence organisation to show that even um, where, you know, things can seem really desperate, you know, the women we support and work with and, and those women in the community who are suffering abuse are actually incredible survivors and survival might just be getting from one end of the day to the next. It might be getting the kids safely out to school and then coming up to times like this Christmas time, you know, coping, managing to hold things together, um, managing to get through some really uh, excruciating, in some cases, situations where they're uh, under enormous pressure um, being abused throughout, but particularly where there's children trying to create that holiday atmosphere in really constrained circumstances. So that just is showing such strength and resilience. But at the same time, the really important message is that, you know, this is abusive behaviour. It's not coming from nowhere. There, is, there are perpetrators here and there's also support available. Are you finding that people are contacting you around Christmas Day or is it the aftermath, I suppose, when, when people leave, when the mask can slip, um, when the, the show of happy families doesn't have to be there? Yeah, what we actually find, and this is a really consistent pattern, uh, Women's Aid provide the National Domestic Violence Helpline. It's 24-7, seven days a week, and that includes Christmas Day, it includes Stephen's Day, New Year's Day, and we also then act as a referral pathway to all of the services around the country. And what we find is that Christmas Day itself tends to be quite quiet, but we would usually get a, a kind of an uptick, a spike in calls in the early New Year, and that's because women have just been, like I say, holding everything 
everything together. You know, families are coming round, they want to kind of get through it. It's kind of trying as much as possible to manage, to keep the peace, even though actually, you know, the person who's responsible for, um, you know, creating the, 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 the pain and, and the discomfort and the, the hurt is actually, is not them. They can't really control it. And I'm wondering there around the messaging in that particular campaign, the strength and the resilience that you're talking about, um, is there also then a stigma in seeking help? Yes, unfortunately there is. And that's one of the reasons why we're so um, excited to have a campaign like this run, which actually is also really importantly about destigmatizing this. Because unfortunately we know from uh, independent surveys we've commissioned and you know separate national surveys just with, with young people up to the age of 25, we know that about a third of those who are subjected to abuse from a current or former partner will tell nobody. And of course, you know, that can be because of fear of consequences, but we also know is because it's a sense of being stigmatized, a sense of that they may be blamed for what's going on. And that really feeds into domestic violence because it's a common tactic of abuse to make somebody feel like it's their fault, it's something they're doing. So this is around trying to really uh, disrupt that message and say, no, you know, there's strength and survival, but there's also help and solidarity there. Strength can't come from nowhere. You have to know that, you know, if I tell somebody I'll be believed, uh, if I reach out for help, there's going to be help there. So it isn't, you know, survivors can't operate in isolation. They need a whole community response yes. to be there. How should people know the signs? What should they do and when should they intervene? That's a brilliant question. It's something that, again, we, we try and encourage people to find out what are the signs of, of domestic violence and abuse. And, you know, there's information on womensaid.ie, the website. And also our helpline is there for people who are worried about somebody who, you know, they care about, but they're not quite sure. And people can feel a bit paralysed. They don't want to do the wrong thing. But really what we know is just actually you know, reaching out in a very non-judgmental way, uh, it, just to ask the question, you know, are you okay? You know, things don't seem quite right. You don't seem yourself these days. You know, if there's anything you want to talk to me about, I'm here in confidence. You know, having the information, you know, about people's rights, their entitlements, the services available. You don't have to have all the answers, but there are signs that can be there. And, and you know, very often there isn't actually physical abuse. It's that pattern, of course, of controlling behaviours. And that can show up with, you know, a friend or a loved one seeming hypervigilant all the time, suddenly seeing more withdrawn, cancelling at short notice, you know, watching their phone all the time if they're out without their partner, seeming just on edge. So there are those little signs. It might not be domestic abuse, but those are circumstances when we'd be saying, wouldn't you ask your friend anyway, yeah. you know, if everything's okay? And if it turns out that it is because of the behaviour of a current or former partner, knowing that there is specialist support there mm. and you don't have to know everything, but you can signpost. Um, we know that during the pandemic, certainly your services were very busy because people, and in lockdown, um, because people couldn't leave their home. They couldn't always escape from a very difficult, violent situation. Um, now we're talking about more restrictions. We're talking about limiting and cutting social contacts. What sort of impact is that likely to have this year, this Christmas? 
Yeah, I mean, this wasn't something that just uh, affected uh, those who were subjected to abuse in Ireland. This was a global issue, you know, very legitimate uh, public health measures. Uh, unfortunately, for those who were in an abusive relationship, particularly if they were living with their abuser, it was kind of a gift to somebody who operates through manipulation control and, uh, mm. and isolating uh, the person that they are targeting. So every time, you know, more, more restraints come in, unfortunately, in those households where it's abusive, where it's coercive and controlling, that acts as a reinforcer and, uh, you know, and, and kind of, unfortunately, it's not that COVID caused more domestic violence, it just created an environment where uh, that kind of behaviour was very much enabled. And it has meant that we've worked really hard with all of our partners and colleagues, not just domestic, also sexual violence organisations, to say, look, you know, reach out, use instant messaging, whatever way it okay. is. Okay, and for anyone uh, tuning in tonight who needs to seek help, Women's Aid are there. They have a helpline. Um, we'll put that up on our website, but that is it from us. My thanks to Sarah Benson. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning, but from all the late team here, good night and do take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.